and welcome to the Resilience Podcast. It's Brad Hook here, and today I'm joined by Anjuli Sharin, who is a Pakistani-American licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma recovery, resilience building, and cultivating joy. She has 15 years of practice working with immigrants, South Asian, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and LGBTQI plus populations. And Julie received her BA in sociology and anthropology from Mary Washington University and her MA from the California Institute of Integral Studies, very relevant to our integral approach at the Resilience Institute. She has trained and mentored leading figures in trauma recovery and energy psychology, and she's worked with Richard Strozzi Heckler, Stacey Haynes, and Vianna Stibel. In addition to awards for academic excellence and community service, Anjuli received the 2007 Emerging Leader Award from the eWoman Network and has been featured in O Magazine as a finalist for the O Magazine White House Leadership Project. It's a real pleasure to get to spend some time with you today to talk about your book, Joyous Resilience, which I'm in the midst of at the moment, and uh, to, to learn a little bit more about your, your life and your work. So welcome, Anjuli. Thank you so much, Brad. Yeah, I'm really excited and honored to actually be on the podcast and to connect with you and all the listeners of the Resilience Institute. It's right on topic, obviously, for me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I thought it might be worthwhile giving us a little bit of your story. I know that you moved from Pakistan to the to the US. And well, what were some of those milestones that led to you writing your book, Joyous Resilience? Yeah, I mean, I... I love to tell the stories, especially for anyone listening, like who's listening for their own personal journey, because even though it ended up being my professional journey at the end, you know, with an authorship and to become a, um, 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 like a clinician, it began actually with me getting on that plane from Pakistan and coming over as an 18 year old to this new country. And all those things, if anyone's hearkening back to being 18 to 22, where it seems like, at least for me, it's that raw time where you left home and you think you know what you know, you think you know what you want and need and you're out there. And at the same time, you really are so young, I think developmentally. And at least for me, the, the missing parts of my education, the parts that I really wish were standardized worldwide, right? Like from kindergarten onwards, were understanding what was actually happening in my insides. So even though, yes, I was prepared for college and I had done all my you know, SATs and all of this stuff, I had no real knowledge of what sensations in my body were telling me about my feelings and then what my feelings were telling me about my needs. And so what, what that led to, which I think happens for a lot of us, is conflict in relationships and feeling depressed and feeling anxious and not even having those words for it. It was just more, wow, I'm erupting into fights and I'm being irritable or I feel down or I feel kind of hopeless or I'm not, you know, having the romantic relational life that I want. Um, things like that, which I'm really, really grateful for friends and peers who were older than me who could actually reflect back and say, this thing that you're going through requires some help and that help is called therapy. And then the joke is because I did come from a culture, um, a South Asian culture, though I think this again can be true worldwide as well, depending upon age and generation. Therapy was a pretty taboo subject. 20 something years ago, still it can be, you know? And so I remember hearing that reflection and actually feeling quite offended at the time. Like, I don't need this, what, you know, what, why are you even saying this to me? And then, like I said, thankfully being surrounded by peers who really were more exposed to this, um, walking into that first therapy session was without any um, 
um, hyperbole, life-changing, right? Because walking in an area realizing I can empty my heart out and just like actually saying what's on my mind without fear of judgment, uh, without fear of like, this person is so close to home. They're like a family member or something like that. We're like, automatically, I'm going to be stuck more with what they need from this issue versus me. It was such a huge relief to empty out what was happening inside. And then truly after that, it was a journey of learning. I said, if I listen deeply, especially from a somatic level, especially to sensation, especially to emotion, I will understand what's actually happening for me. And then that will translate into shift in behavior, choices I make, um, intentions I set, requests I can make, boundaries I set. I mean, that was life-changing transformational knowledge for a young 20-something-year-old. It empowered me in my personal life, but I would also, it also empowered me in my professional life because all of those skills meant I could actually advocate for myself, take care of myself, you know, uh, know what I needed in the workplace and start to rise in that level as much as in my personal life. Um, and then obviously being exposed to that in individual therapy and group therapy also meant like, I couldn't think of any work that I wanted to do more than that in terms of like watching people come alive and watching people feel free. Mm-hmm. just felt right that like that was the path I wanted to follow and the book I'm sure we'll talk about it more is the journey you know like it, now it's actually been 18 plus years of of doing individual and group therapy work taking all of that and going how do we cultivate joyous resilience what is that path and that's that's where the book comes from but it's a very inside journey <laughs> yes and 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 it's amazing that having discovered therapy for yourself discovered this self-awareness it uh, prompted you to start looking at ways to support others. Uh, that's that's such a critical moment in 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 your own journey. Personally, having changed countries at the age of nineteen from South Africa to the UK, uh, I, I wish I had known some of this stuff back then because it seems like life happens to you, and you have not much control over the outcomes. And there are these strange things called strong emotions bubbling up beneath the surface, yeah, and it's all a little bit of a mystery at that age. Really is. It is. It's yeah. very, very beautifully said. And I think often a mystery, you don't even realize that the mystery is happening. You just think that's life. Yeah. And especially if you see your peers also go up and down and no one's talking about it. It seems like this is how we do it. Or if in your family of origin, you also saw older people having emotions go up and down, but no real solution, mm-hmm. actually just implosion or explosion or suppression. It's very hard to know that there's something going on that actually could be different. Um, and that you're actually suffering not living but actually suffering and there is something to be done for that suffering Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit about the 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 cycle of suffering and particularly what are you seeing with younger people nowadays is it um increasing in now that we have all of this exposure to technology that's a good question i mean i think for sure, what seems clear to me is what is increasing is maybe the form that's producing that cycle of suffering. And I'll talk about that in a minute, right? But obviously, social media, both wonderful in some ways in terms of connection you can offer. And then like anything, right? Like you have to look at the light and the shadow. And the shadow of social media feels like it's an arena in which that cycle of suffering is really playing out. Mm-hmm. So for folks who are listening, that process that I went through and like what I break down in the book is what is the opposite of resilience? And so it's not necessarily a lack of a trait in you, like, oh, you're not, you don't have enough grit. Oh, I mean, it definitely could be, maybe you're not so flexible in your thinking, or maybe you've not been so like creative or like adaptable, but that's not necessarily about an innate 
lessness, it actually is about a process that I would say majority of us could relate with. And the process is, there's three parts. So if you imagine a circle, at the bottom of the circle is where I'm going to call your vulnerable self. And that's your insides. It's your feelings at any given moment, right? And you might be feeling sad or anxious about something or lonely, all of that. And again, think about now teens. Going back to when I was a teen, I don't think it's changed. When, when we're teenagers, emotions are at major high in terms of how we feel them. And insecurity is also at a major high, which is appropriate. You're learning, right? Who are you? And you're usually learning about yourself vis-a-vis -vis your peers. And your peers are also feeling pretty insecure about themselves. Mm -hmm. So the vulnerable self is pretty activated. Who am I? Am I enough? Gosh, I feel anxious. So many new things to explore about my body, sexuality, what's coming next. What happens next is really important because when that vulnerable self is responded to by either criticism, so that's the second player in the cycle. If the voice that comes in goes, what's wrong with you? Other people are way cooler. Other people know what they're doing. They don't have these issues. Look at that person on Instagram. She's having a great life. Look at how she looks. You know, um, she or he or they, um, they obviously don't have any flaws, so to speak. So that kind of criticism that comes in and puts one down, judges, um, it's trying to protect but unfortunately, the result is that it actually makes this vulnerable self that started off anxious now start to probably feel pretty helpless, even more shame, and start to actually go the opposite of resilience, start to go towards despair. The second voice that can come in is the voice of neglect. So either I have a critic on this side or I have a neglector. And the neglector is the one who will basically turn their head away from this pain, which is understandable. This is a lot, no matter what age you're in. Uh, we're going to want to get away from this by saying, oh my gosh, let me just scroll more on media. Let me just get busy proving, achieving, buying, doing something. Um, addictions come in this category. Benign addictions, like I'll just binge watch Netflix all day, or like I said, like be on Facebook or Instagram, all the way to drugs and substances and things like that, right? But the, or um, people pleasing, one of the other benign drugs, uh, but very yeah. rampant, right? So nothing's happening with me. Tell me what's happening for you. Because maybe if I please you, I will then be able to get that thing that I need, which is really the assurance that I matter, the assurance that someone cares about me. But I don't know how to give it to myself directly. I need to get it by basically stifling myself. When I do that, it might work for a while. I might zone out for a while. I might feel a little bit better because I bought something or I you know, went for that next job or I have a dream. But unfortunately, later on that night or a few weeks down the road, that feeling of anxiety, am I enough? Do I matter? Gosh, I don't feel good. I want this comes back up. And it's its job to come back up. Like the vulnerable self is doing its job. It's telling you something's bothering me. It's just that then again, criticism, then again, neglect basically means that we start to feel non-resilient and we basically start to go into despair and helplessness and shame. And that's the cycle of suffering. And I would say that, of course, Instagram and Facebook, social media are a hall of mirrors. You walk in, you bring this thing that you have inside of you. And then if you have a critic sitting here and a neglector, they're going to take all those images, all of that stuff, and basically give it to you in the form of criticism, judgment, more reasons to lose yourself. Um, and that's when really the model talks about what I learned, especially in the first half you know, of my 20s was what are the antidote um, inner, inner archetypes that we have to cultivate that let us actually feel resilient? What's gonna make this vulnerable self go, I can do it, I can get back up, I'm okay. You know, I can uh, try for new goals. It's okay for me to make mistakes. 
It's the counter of these voices. And the counter of the critic and the neglector are the unnurturer, which literally is if the neglector is turning their face away, the nurturer is turning their face towards. And it's going, I am going to learn the skill of going, of being with you and saying, A, it's okay what you're feeling. I'm going to learn how to tolerate what you're feeling. And then I'm going to deeply accept what you're feeling. Doesn't mean I like it, doesn't mean we're going to stay with it, but I'm going to accept this is where you are. Mm. And then I really want to deeply understand what's happening and what do you need and i'm going to tend to you i mean just that when you're talking about being 19 and going from south africa to uk or me you know pakistan to america i wouldn't expect a 19 year old to have that but i do think that if that was what was happening in those years i'm gonna learn how to tend to myself and know it's life-changing again i mean that is like having your own inner best friend with you at all times and to know that i'm deeply accepted and respected and understood no matter where I go. I mean, that's liberation, right? In some ways, it's like a profound rest inside, profound quieting of mental chatter, and a profound joy that can come just from the nurture. Next is the protector. And the protector is the antidote to the critic. And the protector goes, all of that stuff is true. And now I'm going to take all of those feelings and sensations and emotions and translate them into needs and boundaries. Because probably there's things inside that you want to say yes to or no to or trying to think about it to that you haven't felt like you have a right to, which is why you've been feeling anxious and depressed. So having that voice that goes, uh, no more criticism. You don't deserve to be spoken to in this way. Let's have a boundary on what images, going back to Instagram and Facebook and the news even, right? Let's have a boundary and a limit on what we're taking in. Let's make sure that we have some logical understanding of this is not reality right like what reality what values do we want to live by and then this can feed that but it cannot come in as a source of more um pain uh you know pain and it's like lies basically lies and like distortions i'm going to put a boundary on that so the protector and the nurture if you have those on either side just even saying that I can feel my own body start to feel a little bit like okay i got i got two really important you know uh kind of parts of myself or two really important comrades with whom I start to feel more bolstered. It, it, it should be no surprise that if you have these two talking to you, that vulnerable self you started with will start to feel a bit more resilient. Um, and then a couple more things I talk about in the book, which I do want to share because people don't think of these are in these times of profound pain, I think again for young people, young people are coming into a world where we don't know how long the world will exist and how. I mean, they're confronted with climate change. In the, the U.S., fascism basically like politically things are really hard and we we don't want to turn our face away again in that neglect so the soul self is a part that i added to the model because i realized that um it doesn't have to be um, um religious but it's more an idea of larger community social movements it could be spiritual it could be nature but how do we turn to it could be imaginal it could be myth how do we turn to something larger than ourselves to very large systemic issues that actually are causing a profound sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And that's, I would say, worldwide. And I would say professionally and personally. And that like workplaces also have to rise in knowing we are affected. I mean, COVID really showed us that. Right? We are affected by larger world happenings and we need spaces, even if it's just a collective that comes together and says, let's talk about this, let's hold this. Um, and then the resilient self is the fourth part of the model that says, and let's not just do it through talk, but we 
learn best and process things most uh, when we also when we include our bodies, when we include sweat, dance, creativity, art, song, um, music, storytelling. Like we have so many ways to access our life force and to process this pain. It does not have to be. And again, this is a very big thing for young people. You know, I'd rather you do a dance video on TikTok and you get out so much of your pain, you realize you can come together and produce joy in a way. Like that's its own way of coming together in a movement and making change, you feeling like you can have power. Like there's lots of ways to harness that life force and that joyous resilience um, when you bring in these four figures. So nurturance, connection and boundaries, the soul self, something larger, and then the resilience self, which is joy, creativity, rest, play, and pleasure. And that's the model. When you are responding to yourself with these archetypes, Again, it's not rocket science that one would feel more resilient. Um, yeah, what an answer. That's, uh, I think we're going to have to do a second podcast <laughs> because I, I want to dive deeper. No, it's uh, the, the, what, what a fantastic answer. And I, I really like that idea of, uh, you know, so many of us play the role of the nurturer or the protector, but never for ourselves, for others. And having that, adopting that mindset of, applying the same principles to yourself as you navigate your life is it's powerful and also that idea of transcending yourself doing something as part of a group i mean with those practical ideas and and that's so aligned with what we what we recommend at the resilience institute it's move your body you know get out there do something you enjoy find your flow state because yes. that is how you experience joy you know go and find it we can't tell you what to do but there must be something that you do enjoy and mm -hmm. do more of that as part mm -hmm. of your resilience building tell us a and little I love bit the emphasis on do just want to say that uh, yes. like i love that you all focus on flow and do or experience mm -hmm. because this is not a concept like i mean it's nice to have the theory it is a lived experience and only by the doing Right, like even like for example, nurturance. Like you said, when I work with nurturance, I say, what is the gesture with which you nurture? What is the body language with which you maybe sit across from one of your um, um, supervisees? Right, like what are you emanating from your body? Because it's so much about a full body experience, much less your words, so that matters. So how do you take that on? Um, and how do you somaticize it? How do you make it into a body based activity, whatever it is that you're wanting to practice? Uh, because concept. It's, it's lovely, but it is not even the beginning, I would say. It's like a little seed out there. So I just love that you all do that. And yeah. I highly recommend doing. Definitely. Uh, I, and I sometimes consider it life as a dance rather than this uh, journey to some destination. Uh, try and find a way to enjoy the experience because it is precious, right? We, we, we're all going to encounter all kinds of adversity. Can you dance your way through it? And, and I think that's very aligned with joyous resilience as per, yeah. as per your book. Yeah, it depends on your dance partner, right? When you're dancing with a critic yes. and a neglector, that's a hard dance. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's actually hard to dance or if it's a dance of misery, but if you're dancing with nurturance, protector, soul self, uh, the creative self, then then you actually are dancing you know mm -hmm. then you are moving so it just depends on who your dance partner is i think because that yeah. makes a lot of sense. that's a great that's a great point who is your dance partner and and 
where are you dancing? <laughs> there are different right. places to go and dance. You know, you don't have to stay in the same, if the nightclub is not for you, go to the, the ballroom or, you know, find places that work for you. I'm really interested in intergenerational trauma. This is an area where you've done a lot of work and uh, I know it affects some people more than others. In what ways can intergenerational trauma inhibit resilience? Yeah, I mean, so first, I mean, I think again, lucky the one who's listening who does not have some experience of international trauma. So I think as human beings, right? Most of us have lived in histories like where things have happened along the way, though they may not have been called or recognized as trauma. So one way that I think of trauma is trauma is anywhere where there was a break in safety and a break in connection, where something happened, doesn't even have to be a huge event. It doesn't necessarily have to be what people think about it, like physical abuse or sexual abuse or neglect. But if something occurred that you were not able to metabolize or your family were not able to metabolize because there wasn't enough support there or safety for it, right? Like, one could have a simple car accident or I mean, not simple, but like, you know, you could have one event that occurs or you witness something, but because there wasn't someone present who helped you make meaning of it, who held you, who said, it's okay that you're crying, you're scared, that, that can stay locked in the body. And then we don't even know anymore as time goes on that it's affecting us, except for the ways that it, how we cope with it by shutting down, by losing access to ourselves. So it shows up later on in life. And then to tie it back to the cycle of suffering, I mean, intergenerational trauma shows up first as the critic and the, and the, and the ne neglector don't come from nowhere. They are learned. And with a lot of compassion for it, if you learned them in your family of origin, obviously they learned it from before that and before that. And if we're looking from the lens of intergenerational trauma, we also have to bring a lot of compassion. So back to the nurture that says, this was the best thinking. Whether you know where it came from or not, just know it probably was the best thinking in the worst of times. This was the way that somewhere along the way, it made sense to cope by criticizing or abusing or getting away and like um, misusing substances or dissociating because that was all that was available to survive at the time. And it probably made sense. So. That's one lens to bring is like when you look at the cycle of suffering for yourself, when you walk it through, if any, any of you are going to read the book, you'll see like I walk you through thinking about where did it come from one generation back and before that. Now, what I also talk about, which I'll just touch on lightly here is intergenerational trauma usually does not exist just in isolation in the family. And the piece that most psychological books or trainings are going to miss, but in the world we live in, it's harder and harder and it's more like salt in the wound to keep missing it is that intergenerational trauma sits inside of systemic and historic trauma. If our families were suffering, they might have also been suffering because the larger political systems uh, that were around them, the history of the time, right? Like depending upon their social location, the, the race they belong to, the culture, the religion, um, the class, all of that would have affected how much support they got from the larger systems or actually was at play, which made it really hard for your family of origin to actually thrive. And then that lack of thriving turned into, of course, criticism and neglect that were internalized and got passed down to you. So this really matters because I think, Brad, as you probably know, right, I mean, common ways of talking about resilience are it's very individualistic. Again, it's an innate thing, something that you should learn or you had or you didn't, or it's a failure. If you're not resilient, it's a failure, um, and it's a personal failure, um, as opposed to really like if we come back to nurturance and protection, as a society, as teachers, um, as all of us listeners, we have to understand 
the nurturer needs to look at any kind of trauma intergenerational and have that lens of compassion that says, I want to understand, I accept this is here, it was wise, tell me more. And the protector needs to come in and go, were you protected? Did the larger society support you or actually were you harmed by? Larger society, are you continuing to be harmed by? And in that case, though we all are dancing, um, not all of us are dancing in the same places and not all of us have access to the same places. And so it's very important when we talk about resilience that we always hold context and go, we're going to do everything we can to identify your inner cycle of suffering and how you can grow in the cycle of resilience. But we're also going to really honor that the places that you have to dance, how much life supports you to have that is not equal. And we need to be working towards that. And one way of working is just honoring and naming that. I hope that makes sense, but it feels important to name. No, it really does. Uh, one, a quote that always stands out to me is by Dr. Robert Sapolsky. And I think he said something along the lines of, to understand why humans behave the way they do, look back 10 seconds and 10 million years, because okay. there is so much complexity that's carried across generations. So, so many behaviors are embedded and uh, and transferred. And, and this happens to us all the time. I can only imagine how much of what I do day to day was influenced by my great grandparents, people that I don't even know. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It's very yeah. interesting. And, and what can people do? So for example, I recognize certain behaviors uh, or, or I recognize certain thought patterns, scripts that I'm running. Are there practical things that I can do to, uh, that people, our listeners can do to bring themselves back to the present? Because I think that's such a key part of resilience is um, mindfulness, obviously embodied action. Uh, what, what are some tips for people who want to stay present in this busy, busy world? Absolutely. I mean, so to me, the being present, right, if you kind of, I, I, I like to just keep tying it back to the model, because I'm like, okay, there's a way in which to vision this. So if yes. you're not present, know that in that moment, probably you're not, because are you caught in those, those scripts you said are probably the scripts of the critic, this and that, and what's happening in the future, and how are you less, or how are you more, or is it that the neglector is coming in and going, this is a lot, this world is kind of crazy, I don't know what's happening for you, let's just check out what's happening over there. Let's go put out this fire, right? So it, to get present, you may want to get present to first, where are you in the cycle of suffering? Because that is already a wake up. You're not just being it. You're actually recognizing, oh, I'm caught in criticism or I'm caught in neglect or wow, I'm actually having some feelings in my body. Now, obviously, we start with a nurture and the nurture any practice that you could do. So yes, breath meditation is great. With the caveat, not, not everybody connects to sitting down. And I think especially if you have had trauma in your life or your just nature is more of a mover, it's okay. You do not have to sit down and close your eyes and get present with your sensations and emotions. I mean, that actually can be a big deal. Um, it can bring up a lot. So if, if that's you, please also, if you have it in your, if you have access to it, do it with somebody. And so who could that somebody be? Um, you know, it could definitely be a therapist or a coach. It could also be a movement teacher. It could be a yoga or a dance teacher. Um, it could be a sports teacher or a martial arts teacher, like any activity that invites you into your body and to be present in your body, um, as in like using your hands. You, you could be doing a sculpting class. Um, 
you know, you, you, you could be climbing at the gym, like anything that engages your body and forces you into the moment in that way is a way to start to build comfort with coming into the moment. Um, and then of course, hands down, doing some piece of work that really is a little bit more about what sensations are happening inside. I think emotions can even be easier for people, but sensations are actually where it begins, right? So am I hot or cold right now? Is there movement or quietness in my body? Am I tense? And if so, where? Or am I relaxed? Um, even a few clues or, uh, or prompts that guide you to sensation, fastest way to come into the moment. Um, and any somatic practitioner that you work with, you know, if you do any kind of therapy or coaching, mm -hmm. then just make sure that it's body-based. Uh, thinking is awesome. The body is the place, though the body's not separate from thinking. The body is where we're thinking from. So just something that brings that together. So movement practices, breath practices, practices that invite touch um, or connection with the body in any way are a good place to begin, um, to be in the moment. I also would say, I think for me, like in my 20s, it was much easier to be in the moment when, when a lot of that chatter had been talked out and released. So there is a balance and there might be things going on in your mind. This is where like you can sit in meditation and it might feel good, but if you feel a rise of chatter, Sometimes it's not enough just to watch it go by. Sometimes that chatter actually wants more of your attention. It wants to be picked apart and heard. There's stories in there that need to be grieved. There's needs in there that need to be understood. So journaling, speaking with a trusted other person, joining even a group, like processing it out does matter. So I, I would say that as well. Those are the things I can think of. Very nice practical tips. And, and also important not to be prescriptive and say, Meditation is the answer. Go and cross your legs and chant a ah, mantra. For everybody. Oh. Or the form of it, different kinds. Yeah. Breath meditation yeah. is not the answer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit. I, I was reading your book, which I recommend. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, what does a joy culture look like versus a consumption culture? Because I think we're we're so this this endless cycle of consumption and this disposable culture that we live in it's not sustainable we we know that quite clearly uh, what does a more joyful culture look like from your perspective i just love that word like even just hearing you say joy culture makes me feel just more alive or like my heart open and i would i just i'm gonna you know put a little wish out there that maybe be having more of these conversations in this world what does a joy culture look like instead of a consumption culture and I think, um, I mean, a few things. One would be to understand, even if you're going to consume, depends on also what you're consuming, is really what you're trying to meet by that. So I think a joy culture, first of all, is one where we are connected to our bodies and our emotions, and we have a greater sense of what we're really seeking. And so, um, like when I teach, you know, like an hour and a half long workshop on this, for example, even though it's a very small amount of time, one thing I'll always emphasize is, um, to really think about it, what's the need that you've been trying to meet through the buying, achieving, succeeding? And in the 18 years of working with clients and myself, I gotta tell you, but I mean, like, I don't think the answers vary so broadly. Like in the end, it feels like we want to feel fulfilled, like wanna feel loved, we wanna feel like we're enough, um, wanna feel like we matter. But the ways that we've been taught to seek that are outside, right? Or they are about a future. When I get that thing, then I will feel. And so what I like to play with people in joy culture is like, if you had that thing, then what would you feel? Oh, well, then I could rest, then I'd be at ease. Or then I would feel like, you know, like I'm good about myself. And it's like, okay, 
How do we have that now? Where does that live now? And some of the ways that I like to play with that is I offer people just a few uh, qualities and you don't have to use these, you can come up with your own. But I talk about things like rest, play, beauty, pleasure, and fun. And what I say is these are all the things that are usually in many cultures or workplaces are the things that are put off to retirement, vacation, the weekend. And the, even though in the end, if I know that I can deeply rest, if I know that I can be at ease, if I can actually be in this moment of beauty and let it touch me, um, if I can be with the one I'm serving right now and let it go all the way in, like our interaction, like even this conversation with you, it's like, you and I are here right now. This is all that matters. If I can be here mm -hmm. in it and like deeply enjoy it by breathing, by taking you in, by taking in everybody who's listening right now, understanding like, gosh, I, I'm living on purpose. How incredible that I get to speak about this in this moment and you're listening and you're with me. Like the more I can be in my body and through my sensations, take that in, the more that I can actually give that meaning and let it come all the way in, the more that I can actually relax my body in that moment even allow the play in it, all of that satisfies, all of that fulfills, all of that brings a joy. And then in the aftermath, it's letting it come in, letting it be enough. Like actually letting myself say like, even if I never accomplish anything else, I will still always have somebody nurturing me, letting me know, you know that I'm loved. I will always have someone on my side who's like working with me to make sure that I'm not overextending myself and I'm really living, you know, connection with like my values. I will still get to walk outside how lucky and like be with the trees and with the birds and with nature. That's why it is important to, I think, have things that have nothing to do with your work, that have just everything to do with being in our world and being present with the beauty of our world, just the, the mystery and the wonder of our world. You know, watch ants walking down and like how they're working with a crumb. Look at like ladybugs. Be with something outside of yourself to bring you back into this moment and what matters. So joy culture will intentionally talk about the real things that you're going after and look for how to experience them in the moment and not actually put joy or your selfhood in things that are yet to be accomplished or done. It is going to come in the nurture and go, you're enough already. You don't do anything else. You just sit here. You're still loved. You're enough. And, th and that takes a lot of unwinding of messages, a lot of practice. I think a lot of modeling from each other and going, I'm not enough because I wrote a book. I am not enough because my clients, I am just a human being. We're all human beings. I get to feel good in my body. I, I want to be able to feel that. I want children to be able to feel that without having to do anything. Um, and that comes from our messaging and it comes from what we choose to prioritize in our life. So I think resting, sitting. <laughs> yeah, what a... <laughs> I completely agree. And I think so much of the time we wait until that holiday. Yes. You know what? At the end of the year, I'm going to have a break and I'll find meaning in that break. And then we go on the holiday and it's stressful because you haven't been connecting with your family for an entire year. You don't know them very well anymore. Uh, your values yeah. might not be aligned. You don't even know who you are. What do you enjoy? And it's forced and and maybe a little bit awkward and and you finish that experience going well i don't want to do that again so where <laughs> else will i <laughs> where else will i find meaning i speak from experience and uh, and yeah it's, um it, i think it's really important to do this every day it's not just uh, something you leave for the weekends to mm -hmm. to have these moments of joy enjoy it in the 
in an experience such as this, where you're connecting with someone, we've been calling it performance with care. For so long, resilience was all about performance. You know, how do wow. I elevate my performance? But the missing component, and elite athletes know this very well, is you can't sustain high performance without care for yourself and, and hopefully others. Well, yeah, I mean, the point is, if this is how you're responding to you, then A, how could it not translate into what you're doing with others? And then to your point, many of us are doing this to other people, but we have forgotten how to turn it to ourselves. So this is in the book. I mean, it is an internal model, but it's very much also a relational model. And as I talked about, it's also a systemic model. May we govern like this? May we have politics like this? Maybe, you know, like whatever movement we belong to, we're saying we start with nurturance and care because you can't sustain living in life without acceptance, without being with where you're at and meeting that. And yeah, I mean, I don't think most of our bodies past our 20s, maybe or early 30s, or I don't know, can survive. Every day is about uh, achieving and producing. And then some point I will, I mean, if nothing else, age is going to catch up to you. It's going to tell you, and you're not going to do that anymore. And it's going to be a cost. And yes, the cost to your body, but also your relationships, but truly to your soul and joy, like you're not, you're not living anymore. So how do you work in a way that brings you joy? So in that workshop I described, we talk about how do you do your life in a way that brings you either rest, ease, beauty, pleasure, play, or fun, but it's woven in, you know, whether it's the cup of tea that you drink while you're doing your thing, whether it's you actually take your breaks, how many people do not take breaks at work, um, whether you pause and enjoy the interactions, you keep your boundaries and you end on time when you need to, right? Like whatever it is, there's so many ways of living your life every day that make life life not life put off. And do, do you think that uh, a joyous culture, if we start to adopt these practices individually and collectively, we can move towards, um, well, I think that if we know what we need and why, we can move carefully towards a more sustainable future where we are more uh mindful about what we consume and 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 the decisions we make day to day because i think that's sometimes the missing piece people go i want to do something that reduces the footprint we're having on on this planet of ours but i don't know where to start and i'm so involved in this uh illusion of consumption and everything else that my actions won't won't make a difference but they actually will if if we collectively start becoming really 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 mindful about what we do and why we feel the way we feel and what we think we need it it will have that ripple effect i think what i'd say to that is yes of course it matters because the more that you're connected to and sensitized to your own sensations and feelings again what's happening in your body you have more of a sense of not only when you're needing something but i think also when you're satiated because like I said, if, you, if I don't know that what I'm feeding, when I'm reaching either for the extra donut or the next piece of fabric or clothing or the next car or house, if I don't know if that's coming from an empty hole inside that has nothing to do with physical hunger or actual need, it's to do with compensating for I'm not enough, I feel despair, I feel anxious. Yes, it behooves us to understand and know what's happening for ourselves because our consumption will change. I mean, I think that's why capitalism and industry does not want us really, wants to keep us so busy and working so hard, they don't even have time to touch base with 
uh, the things that actually fulfill us. If I was home more with my family and I was sitting in nature and I got to exercise and meditate and I actually knew that I had universal income and healthcare, I wasn't so stressed, you know, and actually I was taught that aging is a totally normal process and you're wonderful and lucky to be alive. I would need to buy all their things to make myself feel better, which is not going to be that great for them, but wonderful for me and the planet. So it all connects. One caveat I will say, though, is I do think the onus gets put on individuals, again, by industry, uh, saying, you know, if you just consume something different, that's why the planet is falling apart. And I think the truth is for that, for like climate change, for what's happening in our world, joining movements, joining movements that actually push back on industry, that push back politically, that change laws, that's one place to actually galvanize and feel that resilience. But of course, it can also usually only happen I think for a lot of us who are so stressed out, if you can find a way to first get some rest, if you if, and if you are somebody who's listening who actually has some power in the industry that you're in where you could actually advocate for your employees and supervisees to get the rest, to take their time off, you need that downtime to even be able to hear yourself again, to even have the energy to be like, oh, my body, my family, and then, whoa, my community, my world. So that's why I think, I mean, rest really matters because we all are telling each other, like, we know the world is on fire. We know we need to do something. We don't talk about how burnt out majority of us are. Like, truly, because of a lack of, because the systems have burnt us out and it's working to their advantage. So if any way we can leverage our power to permission ourselves to rest and recover, then we can leverage that towards movement work and change. That's I love that question. Such a powerful message and 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 so aligned again with our latest research, which showed that the number one factor supporting people who stayed really resilient through the pandemic was sleep. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know that's a like, taboo subject to huh, Brad. Like people don't like like people have been shamed into, well, I only get six hours of sleep and that's great. So anybody needs to hear it. I get nine to ten. I need ten. And it and I mean truly it has saved me. Um, so please, if you can, give your bodies what you need. And I also love naps. Naps are part of my joy practice. So if your body needs a nap, take a nap. Like Yes, sleep helps us stay yeah. resilient, helps us integrate, and all forms of rest. All forms of rest. Relaxation was the fourth most important factor. Uh, mm. And second was fulfillment, taking a few moments out to enjoy your experience of life, exactly. right? Simple, simple things. Uh, so a few last questions. Who inspires you? And uh, what are some of your uh practices that enable exquisite self-care for you as a as an individual gosh who inspires me that's a big um i'll talk about two that are so completely the opposite and yet i do love them so i love um um, um, um aoc who's a uh a, a congress member here i'm um, in the u.s you probably know her um, um alexandria ocasio cortez and what i love about her is her ability i think her resilience in terms of she teaches so much. She connects through social media. Um, she obviously, you know, is doing so much work just to, I think, really care for the collective. Like her politic is really let's care for the collective. Let's think in ways um, that are are really just about how, how can we all thrive. What I enjoy is her sense of humor. I enjoy how she engages with a lot of polarization, but like shows how you can be playful and creative um, and engaged and heartfelt. And I think. I mean, that way she really moves me and, and inspires me. And 
gives me a lot of hope, you know, like to see that spirit out there. Um, it, it calls on that part of my spirit and goes, I want to stay engaged in this world. I want to keep finding the flames of hope. So I really love her. Now her work ethic, uh, I mean, the amount that she's called upon to do, you know, that I watch that and I'm like, gosh, like, again, I wish that this was different systemically. I wish that she didn't have to do it at this level. Um, so on the other side, people who inspire me, um, I have this one woman I've been following recently. Um, her name is Susan Branch. She's, uh, she's American, but she, um, she's probably in her 70s. It's a completely different demographic for me. Uh, not anybody that I would have ever known or aligned with. But Susan writes this blog where she talks about the moons that she saw this year and how beautiful they were and the sunrises that she caught and how she hung her laundry on the line, how beautiful it looked and the flowers that came out. Um, and she loves to have tea parties and, you know, like read books and watch old movies and music. And I, every morning I, I wake up recently and I have my breakfast and I read some of her blog and I play this old fashioned music and it just creates this mood. And it reminds me of the things that give me pleasure. And it, I think it makes my nervous system feel safe. Um, it totally drops me into like, that's a model of what do I want to look at today? Where is wonder coming from? Um, I can change my mood easily if I do these things, if I put my focus on something unrelated to, like I said, world politics, personal ambition, my, my focus is on where is there beauty and delight and pleasure and play around me. And so she's been just such a wonderful model and and I love that. She's also very politically active and she's a writer and she has all these things, but she's very much in living life every day and like being present for those little joys. And I can't think of a better thing to model in this world. So Amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to check that out. It, she sounds incredible. Yeah. I love those moments of wonder each day. Isn't that something to aspire towards? Find something that makes you curious or that gives you a sense of awe. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, curious. That's so much fun. Go down a rabbit hole of pleasure and play and just learn something unrelated, but reminds you why it's fun to be alive. Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. That's um, wonderful. And uh, any any last thoughts for our our audience who will most certainly connect with you? Find your book link in the show notes. Any last thoughts before we we sign off? We've spoken for longer than planned, and it has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. I've loved talking to you too. It's yeah, it's really fun to talk about these things. It's so important. Um, I think I guess it's just for some reason I feel like saying from my heart, I want to send a lot of love out to everybody. We have all been through again the same storm, different boats through the same storm, but the same storm. And it's been very hard, very hard few years. So it just we don't talk about tenderness, I think, in work culture. I just feel like we we remove the heart sometimes from our professional lives, especially. And I would love to bring the heart back in as part of joy culture and say like, I just wanna send out tenderness. I wanna say we're all much more the same than we are different. Um, this model I'm describing, like I'm rooting for you in terms of nurturing yourself and I'm rooting for you in terms of those boundaries. I'm rooting for you to play and rest and pleasure, even if it brings up guilt, work with that guilt and take it back. Um, we really need each other, we really need to be deeply caring for ourselves so that we can have that energy to come together. Um, and also, if you are here and listening to this, how incredible and how wonderful and how lucky for all the people in your lives. And thank you, Brad and Resilience Institute for having this. Um, also for a practical, final practical tool, I think Brad, you'll link to this. Um, 
everything I talked about today, there are nine free guided meditations. So will walk you through these archetypes and connecting them for yourself. So if that's of interest to you, uh, I hope that you'll make use of that as well. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Anjuli. It I've learned a lot and I'm sure our readers have as well. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's, uh, it's, it's really wonderful to have people like you out there. So I appreciate thank you, it. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Thanks everyone for joining the Resilience Podcast and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. See you, Anjali. Bye.